Good morning, Door Creek. Man, you guys made it. I mean, this, is what, this was a sleep-in morning, right? Thanks. Good to see you guys here. So if you're a guest, my name's Mark, one of the pastors, part of the teaching team. And uh, welcome to Door Creek. So I want to give you a little ministry update. We've got a leadership board here. It's called the Stewardship Board. We only have one board. It's pretty simple. It's awesome. And made up of godly women and men who are charged to uh, seek God for direction for our church. And so every couple of years, there is a new set of vision initiatives. We just finished out Rooted and all the cool things that happened from that. And so the last year, the board's been really working on what's next. And they've asked me to just share a little bit about that. So some of you will be glad to know that in the next two years, we do not plan on doing anything new. All right? Okay, good. So what we want to do is, because we've got these two new campuses, we really want these next two years to be about this new campus on the north side taking root, building a strong foundation, this, this loving community that is serving and loving the north side of Madison, helping the kids and the families flourish as God intends. And then we want to just see the new building be leveraged up into forests so that our campus can branch out and reach more people, literally Hundreds of people are moving in every month right around the church building. Lori and I were walking around it yesterday. It's such a beautiful new site. And around it, where it used to just be cornfields, there are just houses going up, going up, and they're just plowing out the ground to put a whole new track of houses right behind that church. So we're excited about that. That's a big part of it. We want to continue to build and reach and attract young families. So there's going to be more about that and some new looks and feels to different facilities and keep leaning into sports ministry that just has us meet, meeting lots of new families and kids. And then we want to keep building in the leaders like Claire, who was an intern with communications this summer, more interns, more residents, more training of our volunteers and staff. And to do all this, we also need some expanded generosity. We're taking on some big commitments this year with a new campus and a new facility. And so we need to meet that, and part of ministry expansion is going to go towards that, and part of it is going to go for capital reserves because things like air conditioning units, like we've had to replace all of them this year, like a hundred grand to do that. So you got, you know, it's a 19-year-old building, and you got to take care of the building and the parking lots and things like that. And so what's happened is the board, the strategic leadership team, 100% committed. There's some families in the church that are committed to doing this above and beyond a regular giving. And we already have 65% of the million that goes to these different initiatives. And so the board's just asked me, hey, invite the congregation in on this as God leads you and you should know there actually is this new fund it's the ministry expansion fund it's printed on the envelopes now back at the offering boxes you'll see it online and if you want to connect that your resources that or learn more about the ministry expansion fund just go on to doorcreekchurch.org the giving page and click on that box that says ministry expansion all right all right week four Romans can I just say, I love you guys for loving Romans. Like, there's this, there's this like, we love Romans. Thank you for digging into Romans. And that's really encouraging. Because Romans, hello, if you didn't know, that's tough stuff. And we're going to be talking about things we would never plan to talk. That's the beauty, you guys, about going through books of the Bible. That God actually sets the agenda. And we talk about things from God's perspective that actually we would not normally talk about. 
So, uh, week four. Week four is going to be all about the kindness of God. I want you to think about kindness. I want you to think about people who've extended kindness to you. And I'm going to just take a venture that most people have a very positive response to someone's kindness. The cop who pulls us over, we know it. He knows it. We were, we were, you know, we were over the limit by maybe 10 or 12. And she or he was just nice enough to write us a warning. That was kind. And we needed that extra 100, 200 bucks for other things, right? <laughs> that was kind. We, 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 you know, how many times have we called the 1-800 customer line and it's been one of the most frustrating experiences of our life. But this time we actually get someone who gets it and they're kind and they understand our situation and they rectify it and they make it right and they were kind in doing so and they end the conversation with, and is there anything else I can help you with? And you go, that was so great. Why can't everybody else get this? Kindness, the person who wrote you a thank you note and just took time to do that. The kindness of the person who goes, man, I know you've been sick and you didn't get to the classes and hey man, you can look at my notes if you want, right? The, the kindness. I think our response is universally the same. Oh, okay, there's some curmudgeons out there that don't get it. But most of us go, that was so nice. Like when our friends, Jim and Sue, heard that we were going to Colorado. This was back in the day when they still had station wagons, so that's a long time ago. And uh, they heard that we were going to Colorado with our kids because we used to do that and meet Lori's family in Colorado. And they knew that we were driving this old jalopy, this old Buick's LeSabre that had as much rust on the body as it did paint. And I, I guess when they looked at our car, they were thinking, that car's not going to make it to Colorado. So they said, why don't you guys use our car? They just bought a new station wagon. Hey, millennials, we'll tell you about station wagons. They were really cool. It's pre-minivan, all right? All right. I said, why don't you just take our new station wagon? We're, we, we're good. No, really, take our car. We said, that's awesome. Thank you so much. So we're driving down I-80, and the sun comes up, and I put the visor down, and an envelope falls in my lap. I hand it to Lori. She goes, you're not going to believe this. There's $200 of cash. Jim and Sue are saying, hey, man, we love you guys. Have a great vacation. Kindness. Now, here's the crazy thing about chapter 2. Paul's going to say there's actually not a universal response to the kindness of God. That some people get it, some people will reject it. Some people are going to conclude that they don't need it, the kindness of God. So where have we been? We've been talking about the good news. God's love for all people, right? His love in sending his son for us. The good news that directs us in how to live for God, right? And, and last week we talked about, well, the good news that's offered to all people is offered to all people because all people need the good news. We all need it. And so last week we moved from the, the good news of the first two talks to the back half of chapter one, which is bad news. And Paul was reminding the people of how we need the gospel because we've rejected God. Remember this, this whole progression and downward spiral that explains how we got here today. Why someone would actually go into a synagogue with semi-automatic weapon and mow down 11 people yesterday morning. Why someone else would be sending pipe bombs to different people that they have a grudge against. 
How do we make sense of the world today? Well, last week we, we learned that how we make sense of this world today is the history of humanity of our own lives in different ways and forms is we've rejected God, we've ignored him, we've, we've turned to other gods and made God into our own liking, we've rewritten the rules, the rules about sex, the rules about how we love our neighbors ourselves, and the bottom of it is we promote that kind of living and celebrate those who do that. And he said, those people need the gospel. And Paul's anticipating that people in the church are going, of course they do. Preach it, brother Paul. And it's very likely those people in the church, remember these, these little house churches, four or five of them scattered around the city of Rome, 20 or 30 people, made up of Jews and Gentiles. It's very likely the Jewish element who turned to Christ were thinking, preach it, brother Paul. Because these Gentiles, man, they are wild people that have done all kinds of crazy things and they need the good news. But not us, because we're God's chosen people, right? We've got the law. We know the law. We keep the law. And we've got circumcision. We've been marked off as God's people. We don't need the good news. But Paul's going to say, actually, Jesus came to save us from our badness. And Jesus came to save us from our, it's, it's bad English, but it's theologically true, our goodness. This is where he's going to go. And the people that are most inclined to reject the kindness of God are the people who are good. They don't think they need the good news because they are good. Why would I need the good news? They need the good news. I don't need the good news. So grab your Bibles. Romans chapter 2 is where we're going. Towards the end of your Bible, if you're new to the Bible, go to the table of contents after the book of Romans before 1 Corinthians. Now I'm going to divide this up into three sections. It's not necessarily sections in your Bible here, but I'm going to take 1 through 11. And what we're going to do with 1 through 11 is just say they have a misplaced confidence in their moral standing. In uh, 12 through 24, the reason they do is because they have misplaced confidence in their moral code. And in 25 through 29, they have a misplaced confidence that came from their moral pedigree, their spiritual heritage. Paul's going to say, look, just because you think you're better than these other people because you're living this morally superior life... Don't forget to look in the mirror. You're actually guilty of the same kinds of things. Just because you know the law and maybe have memorized part of it doesn't mean that you perfectly obey it. Just because you think you're a child of God and you've been marked with this mark of circumcision, which we'll talk about when we get to that third section, doesn't mean you actually are. You're misunderstanding who actually is a child of God. So we start with the first one, their misplaced confidence in themselves, their moral standing. Verse 1, you therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them, and yet do the same, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Now, do you know you can frame a question in Greek, the original language here, and you know the expected answer? Do you, do you, do you think you will escape God's judgment? The expected answer is 
Nege, no, you're not going to get an escape clause there. Or do you show contempt? Here it is. Or do you show contempt, strong word, hatred, disdain for what? The riches of what? His kindness. There it is, that, ah, that's surprising. People could actually have that kind of response to God's kindness, his forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance, to, to, to change you, to turn you around back to God. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. He had just talked about God's wrath is gonna go against all that is not conforming to his will and to his character. And they're thinking, yeah, and those people like the Gentiles who do all those heinous things, chapter 1, 29 through 31, those 21 different sins, yeah, they deserve God's wrath. And he said, no, no, it's not just them. You're in play too. You're in play too. So, as good moral people, he wants them to know that they need to be saved from their goodness. Now, to be true and fair, they weren't the people who'd gone to the point of promoting and celebrating a life of sin. That's not who they were. But they were blind to their own hearts. The Bible says this about the human heart in Jeremiah. The heart is deceptive above all things. Who can know it? It's one of the trickiest things for you and I to know. Not someone else. There's no way. We know that. We know we don't know somebody else's motives. A lot of times we assume their motives, but the truth is we don't know somebody else's motives. But the Bible is saying we don't even know the motives of our own heart. We don't know what the engine is that sometimes drives us to do good or not to do good. It's a tricky thing. They're blind to their own hearts. And he's going to unpack that. And he says it a couple of times. You guys are doing the same things. You're judging these people and go, can you believe what they're doing out there? And he says, you're guilty of some of the same things. And so we start unpacking this kind of self-righteous attitude, their spiritual pride, their misplaced confidence. And by the way, this is the stuff that just isn't 2,000 years ago. It's the stuff that walks right into our lives and our hearts and our churches today. A judgmental spirit is the first mark we saw. Judging others, taking God's place, like this is our place, is to judge other people. That was wrong. Blind hypocrisy. God knew what was going on. Probably most of the other people knew what was going on. I mean, here's what I know. In the church... In our, in our families, whatever we say is one thing, but what we do, that's the standard, and kids know the difference. They smell it, and it wreaks havoc. It wreaks havoc in those people's lives and in our lives. Remember the story that Jesus told in Luke chapter 18? Two guys went to the temple to pray. One was this Pharisee, this religious guy. Man, he was steeped in the scriptures, knew the scriptures, and he was all about religion and doing the work for God. He walks into the temple and he raises his head to the Lord and he starts to pray, God, I thank you that I'm not like these other people who do all these kind of bad things, including this guy over here, this tax collector, who's defrauding your people out of their money. 
thank you that I'm not like that. I thank you that I'm a person who gives 10%, a tithe of all that you've given to me, and that I fast twice a week. And then he said the, the tax collector, he couldn't even look up to God, and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus said, guess who walked out of the temple in a good place with God? It wasn't this guy who claimed to be superior. It was this one in humility who acknowledged his need for God. So they were blind to it, and they were blind not only to their own sinfulness, but they were blind to their need then of God's kindness, his patient mercy. And so rather than reach out for it, they reject it. And it's not just a blindness here, but the, the, the offer of God's kindness that would lead us to change is an offense. What are you saying that, that I need the gospel, that I need a savior? Well, what are you saying that I need Christ just as much as that guy who just blew up the synagogue? That I am so offended that you think I need the gospel, that I need Christ, because the whole point of pursuing this is we become our own savior and we actually get to control God by our good behavior. So we leverage God, and the reason we know we're leveraging God like this is when things don't work out well for us, and we go through suffering, and we go, what is up with that? I've been doing all this for you. This is, it's just, just listen to the words of the older brother in the prodigal son story in Luke 15. All these years I've been slaving for you. You never thrown a party for me. He is ticked off at the father as he extends his lavish kindness and grace on his, his just rebel younger brother. And when we go through suffering and we start get angry at God, I'm not talking about questioning God. I'm talking about getting mad at God. Because you know what? We've actually been doing this stuff not to know the Father, but to leverage the Father and get the good stuff. We don't want the relationship. We just want the benefits. We want a God with benefits. And so this is what's going on. And they're rejecting this strong word, the very kindness of God. And at the heart of it is we're saying, you know, God, there's a lot of bad people out there and my life is far superior from them. I know they need saving, but I'm good. I don't need a savior. I'm actually my own savior. And in rejecting the kindness of God, they're rejecting Christ. Titus 3, 4 makes it really clear. When the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, that's Christ. Christ is the kindness of God. The one who chased us down with his love all the way to the cross when we didn't desire it or deserve it. The kindness of God. So, what's he saying? He's saying, look you guys, you've got the self-righteousness going. You're looking at other people. You've got the binocular syndrome, right? The word is supposed to be a mirror that reflects our own heart and our need for Christ and where we're not conforming to God's perfect will and character. And instead of using it as a mirror to look at ourselves, we're going, oh, man, oh, yeah, those people over there, they are so jacked up, messed up. They need Jesus so bad. He says, you've got the binocular syndrome going down. You just need to know 
that you do the same things. And so you deserve God's judgment. And God's judgment is based on truth, not your truth that you think is true about you, but on absolute truth, what God knows is right and what God knows is wrong, and he shows no favoritism. And so just because you're part of God's chosen people, just because you have the law, the word of God, just because you have the mark of being part of his people, it doesn't mean you get a pass to the judgment of God. And that's where he goes next, verse six. You there? God will repay each person according to what they've done. To those who by persistence in doing good or perseverance or endurance in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he'll give them eternal life. So those who respond in faith to Christ and follow eternal life. But those who are self-seeking, who reject the truth, who follow evil, there'll be wrath and anger There'll be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentiles, but glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, for God does not show favoritism. So do you grow up in a family where there's a, there's a favorite? How many of you grew up where one of the kids was a favorite? Okay, here's the better question. This is where no hands go up. I know. Oh, so there's a bold person back there. There's another one. I see that hand. I see that hand. Man, we had, you know, that was not me. That was not me. And um, that, that was hard for us. We would say sometimes, this universal saying, you fill in the blank. We would say, they were so much the family favor that they could get away with murder, anything. <laughs> All right, God's saying, look, that's not the kind of dad that I am. That's not how I work. Yeah, you guys are moral people. You know the law. It's talking to the Jewish element within the church. You're my chosen people. But, I, but you know what? It's based on truth. I'm going to be consistent. Both my justice, my mercy, and love is metered out because of who I am, not conditioned on who people are. So you don't get a pass. So they got this misplaced confidence in their own moral standing. And, and we got to ask them, why in the world would they reject the kindness of God? Well, it's because they think they don't need the kindness of God. And what brought them to the thinking that they didn't need the kindness of God? What brought them to this point where they thought they were morally superior and didn't need a savior? And there's two things he's gonna unpack. The first in the next section, in 12 through 24, he's gonna say they have a misunderstanding about the law of God and they're forgetting. There's a huge difference between knowing and listening and hearing the word of God and actually doing the word of God. That's why James, Jesus' brother, says in James 1.22, don't be just a hearer of the word of God. You gotta be a what? A doer. You gotta do it. So the second thing they, they have a misunderstanding about is who is a child of God? How do you become a child of God? Is it as simple as something done with a human hand and a mark in the flesh? Or actually, is it something deeper done in the heart by the Spirit of God. You have this moral superiority complex because you misunderstand the law and your spiritual heritage. Verse 12. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. Who is he talking about? He's talking about Gentiles who didn't grow up under the teaching of the law. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. They're gonna be judged too. Because there's going to be another law in play that they're breaking. He's going to talk about that in a bit. And all who sin under the law, that would be a Jewish person growing up under the law, the teaching of the law, will be judged by the law. 
For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it's those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are actually written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness to that law written on their hearts and their thoughts sometimes accusing them when they break that law and at other times will be even defending them. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. So what's he doing here? What's he doing here is just making it clear that they've got a misplaced confidence in their moral values, and their moral code. This is easy to illustrate because we all get this, whether we're a parent, we remember when we were a child, or maybe we're there now and we've heard this conversation this week. A parent says to their child, hey, young man, I need you to do X, Y, Z, right? I need you to do this. And Lori and I, we taught our kids obedience. What it means is you do what mom and dad asks you to do when mom and dad asks you to do it. 15 minutes go by and the parent notices that it hasn't been done yet. Remember, I asked you to pick up your toys. I said, and so the parent goes back and they say to their child, young man, did you hear me? And if he says yes, we don't go, great, I was just checking. <laughs> what do we say? Well, then get busy, do it, clean up your room, take out the garbage, whatever it was we asked them to do. It's not enough to hear it. It's not enough to know it. It's not enough to download it, to listen to sermon after sermon, to read books on the Bible, to do all these things. All, is that, all that is not bad. It's just not the same as obedience. To obey, to obey is better than sacrifice. It's not enough to hear it. We need to do it. So he points out that the Gentiles who weren't given the law follow it as they follow this law that's written in their hearts. And there's a conscience that either defends them or accuses them. And so now there's a second reason all humanity is without excuse before a holy God because he's revealed who he is in creation. Chapter one, his eternal attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature, clearly seen through what has been made. What is he saying, Paul? What Paul is saying is you can't live in this world without knowing that there's a God because you live with his fingerprints all around you. You are without excuse. Here he's saying, you're without excuse because you may not have heard of the law, you may not have this moral code, but actually you were hardwired. There's a chip that was implanted in your own heart where you know the difference between right and wrong and the law is written in the human heart and your conscience gives attestation to that. When's the first time you met your conscience? We were talking about that this week. One of the people in our sermon discussion group said, oh man, it was when I stole my first bag of M&M's. And I took it out of the Ben Franklin 5 and 10. And I was assuaged by my guilt. And I just, I was just, I was afflicted by it. And I didn't know how to assuage it. And, and, and this person went on to say, so the next time I went to the Ben Franklin, I slipped a quarter on the counter. But it didn't seem to be enough. So every time I went back the next two weeks, I kept slipping a quarter on the counter. That's the conscience. That's reminding us, that's not right, that's not right. Now here's what the Bible says. If you rebuff the, con the conscience that God has implanted in us, we actually, the Bible says that using the metaphor, we can sear it. 
We make it ineffective in the same way that if I take my thumb and press it hard on the hot fire of, or the, the, the hot heat of my electric range, right, that, that it's very likely I will have no more feeling in this anymore. It's been seared. I don't sense it anymore. And so what is he saying? He says, look, you guys, you're forgetting it's not enough to know this. You got to live it. And by the way, there's people who didn't even have the, the law given to them, and they're actually living according to the law that wasn't revealed through Moses in the Ten Commandments in the, the first five books of the law, the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, but they're following the law that was written in their own hearts, their conscience pointing to that. So come on, even the Gentiles do this. And then he drives it home as he asks these five questions. Oh, man. Look at these questions, verse 21. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourselves? You who practice against stealing, do you steal? You say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? Remember what Jesus said? If you have lust in your heart, you commit adultery. You abhor idols. Do you rob temples? Don't you guys have some of these artifacts in your own home? You boast in the law. Do you dishonor God by breaking the law? And basically all these questions are assuming, yeah, yep, 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 you do it, you do it. And what's the result? Verse 24, God's name is blasphemed. Because your life is a joke and it mocks God. And God isn't worshipped here. He isn't thanked and praised. He's actually ridiculed. What a pathetic joke. And do you know how many people, how many kids have grown up in churches who just said, I want nothing to do with it? Because they lived under this kind of self-righteous hypocrisy, saying all the right things, big-time, heavy, legalistic guilt thing going on. And then everybody knowing it doesn't smell right. It doesn't smell right. I think of, so, you know, my mom grew up. She was one of nine. And I would say maybe seven of the nine kids just walked away. And when my mom describes the church that she grew up in, it was that church. It was the elder brother kind of church, the self-righteous, doing good, full of legalism, full of all these external things that had nothing to do with the grace and truth of Jesus Christ. And it becomes a mockery, not just to the kids in the church, but to the people that are watching us. It's a joke. He says, you need you need. Christ because you don't understand the difference between knowing the word and actually doing the word and you're not doing it. You're not perfectly keeping the law. So then he gets to this last thing about their misplaced confidence in their spiritual heritage and who actually is a child of God. Verse 25, circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you become as though you had not been circumcised. So then, if those who are not circumcised, the Gentiles keep the law's requirement, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you who even though you have the written code in circumcision are a lawbreaker. A person, here's the point, a person is not a Jew. He's not this chosen person of God who is one only outwardly. It's not just about the externals. Nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people 
but from God. So circumcision, the word means to cut. It was actually a practice around in Egypt. It was around with the Philistines. It was not this new thing that never had been done before. Actually, for many of these other people groups in the ancient world, it was like this, um, this um, rite of passage for young men. Think of more like age 12 or 13. Of, okay, you've now become a man, and circumcision preceded that. That's not what this is about. This word means to cut, and it's called the symbol or the sign of the covenant. What's a covenant? It's a promise. Whose promise? God's promise. What was the promise? I want to be your God. I want you to be my people. We're going to enter into this relationship together, and this is going to be the mark that points to you've been marked off for me. You belong to me. We're in this relationship together. And this mark was always not just to be something that was external, but it was the external sign that pointed to an internal reality of a changed heart. This is an external sign that says I'm married to Lori. Circumcision, that I belong, I've been marked off, that we as a people have been marked off by God for God. And so it was a mark of submission that starts in the heart. Back in the Old Testament, in the law, Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. It's all about a spiritual life that begins not by our good works, but by God's grace through faith, a work of the Spirit. So I don't know if you've got a spiritual heritage. I, I mean, I've got an awesome spiritual heritage. My parents, I, I never didn't know about Christ. So that's the home I grew up with. My, my grandparents were believers. On my dad's side, someone chased it back to the 1500s. They say there were believers going all the way back there. Great spiritual heritage. I don't know what your pedigree is, what kind of schools you went to. I, I was a public school kid, but I, you know, I went to Bethel College, now university. I did a Bible degree. Then I did three years at Trinity Seminary, and then I went back and I got a doctorate. I've got all this stuff. And then, then we got all these experiences. Because, man, I, I'm, I'm preaching this this week, and I'm going, oh, Mark, you better listen to what you're saying. Because you're in great danger to being deluded here on so many counts, because I, I, I know a lot. I don't, know, I don't know everything about the Bible. There's a lot I don't know, but I know a lot about the Bible. Don't be deluded in thinking that just because you know a lot about the Bible, Mark, that you're actually doing the Bible. Don't be deluded just because you got this great spiritual heritage and you've done things for God and been a pastor for 35 years means that you're a child of God. Don't be deluded in these things. Now, it's, it's not wrong to have a moral code. It's not wrong to have a spiritual heritage. But he's saying... Don't think that you are God's child because of your spiritual heritage. This is, a funny, this is a funny expression, but it's theologically profound. Have you heard it? God does not have grandchildren. He doesn't have grandchildren. We don't ride into this right relationship with God and into heaven and enjoy the gifts of, of God's abundant love today because we're connected to somebody who has that kind of relationship, i.e. my parents. No, God has children. And so 
These people were banking on their spiritual heritage, their spiritual accomplishments, the past. And it's not enough. And it is not the stuff that makes us children of God. And if that's the basis upon which we think we are God's child, we're on shaky ground. And when Paul talked about his spiritual heritage and how he's a Hebrew of Hebrews and he was a Pharisee and he was zealous and he, he persecuted the Christians, he was circumcised on the eighth day, and when he compared it to his relationship now of knowing Christ, he says, I treat that stuff as garbage. That was a nice way the NIV translated it. I think the old King James was maybe dung. And you and I could think of other words that we would use today that I'm not going to use. I treat it like that because it has no comparison. So there's this big difference between the external things and a heart that has been marked by the Spirit. So a couple questions as we close. Are you a child of God? If you say yes, on what basis? Because I'm living a good life, because I, I, I have moral values, and I'm trying to keep those, because I'm better than most people that I look at around the world, because, man, I've been, I've been doing a lot for God. I got this spiritual heritage. I got this spiritual history. I'm doing a lot of stuff for God. On what basis? If we haven't responded to his kindness, received it, understanding that we need it, a kindness that leads me to repentance, we're not a child of God. That's the lesson. That's the argument here. If we haven't responded in receiving his kindness, believing that Jesus kindly, amazingly, did for us what we could never do for ourselves, and if it hasn't changed who we are and how, we've, how we're living our lives, then we're not a child of God. We need to be saved from our goodness. We need to be saved from our good works. I'm not a child of God if I've rejected the kindness of God going, I'm offended by the thought that you think my life isn't good enough because my life is so much better than so much of the crud that's going on around this world. I'm offended. If you say that guy who went in to the synagogue and murdered 11 people yesterday morning and, and me, who's done all this for God, both need Jesus, that, that we're in the same moral ground of desperately needing Christ, I'm just, forget it. I don't want anything to do with it. And here's what I'm convinced of. The thing that keeps us from the kindness of God is our own pride. It's the, it's the first thing, it's the only thing that keeps us from Christ is our pride. And so when we're operating in that, there's a judgmental spirit. Is that part of our life, guys? A judgmental spirit, binocular syndrome, always looking out and seeing how bad it is? Or is there humility where the word keeps changing us? Man, something happened yesterday where I was just so made aware of this heart is so messed up. I, I want so much to live for Christ in all of my life and just totally blew it yesterday, just totally. 
And it was like, that was not the message prep I needed, the Lord, Lord but it's the message prep I needed. I, I need Christ's grace and his kindness, not just at the beginning of my life with God, but every day of my life. And if there's a judgmental, critical spirit that's filled with arrogance and pride, that's not a mark of a child of God. All this biblical knowledge without obedience, that's not what children of God do. This God talk that we turn on that is just messed up, stop it. Stop the God talk, the hyped up spirituality. That is not a mark of a child of God. This focus on the external things and carelessness of the heart, that's not a child of God. This preoccupation with what I've done for God, of my heritage, of the past, that's not the mark of a child of God. This presumption that I deserve God's favor because I'm doing the good work for him. We're not a child of God if we haven't responded to the kindness of God. And so... Paul comes to the end of chapter two. He says, it doesn't matter how bad you are, the good news is greater. And it doesn't matter how good you are, it still falls short of God's glory of Christ. We need a savior. And what a great thing that he loves us both and he loves us all. And so here's the deal. If you've got God's kindness and you've responded to that and you've repented, change of mind, change of action. Confession, sorrowful for it, contrition, Not worldly sorrow, but godly sorrow that leads to life. Worldly sorrow is, man, I'm just sorry because I got caught. And man, I hate the consequences of what's going on in my life. But godly sorrow that leads to life because you're committed to the fruit of repentance and ongoing obedience and true life change. When that's marked your life, you now have God's kindness through the spirit in your own heart. And guess what? You are positioned to be this ATM of God's kindness this this conduit of God's kindness. And God's kindness is meant to lead people to turn back to God, to repent. Oh, that we would be those kinds of people. That the kindness of Christ would be so tangible that people would want to turn back to Christ. You actually have the power to do that through the Spirit this week. And you have the ability to hit the pillow tonight and know for sure that you belong to God. It has everything to do with, did you receive his kindness, even Jesus' son? Let's pray. So Father God, break down the, um, the defenses of pride and then the, just the defensiveness that is so naturally a part of the human condition when your word calls us short and say whether we've been really, really bad or really, really good, we all need your son, Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, you say in your word that faith comes through hearing and hearing the word of God. Holy Spirit, in accordance with your word, would you help people to believe today that they need Jesus? And would you fill us with your spirit, even the kindness of Christ, your kindness, God, that we would be instruments that would turn people back to you, our creator God, our life-giving God, the one in whom all guilt is removed and we find our hope. In Christ's name we pray, amen.